you wished upon a star. Now we want you to share with us our latest and greatest dream. Disneyland. Just go to Action Park, there's no other park like it. Six Flags Great Adventure. It's not a world away. Paramount's Kings Island. We will officially open Universal Studios Florida. Hello, I'm Michael Eisner. Now, here is your host. Hi, my name is Kevin Perger, and welcome back to the Defunct Land Podcast. This is the first podcast episode of Season 2, and I'm so excited to discuss our first Season 2 episode, Journey into Imagination. Today, I am joined again by Ron Schneider. Ron did a few podcast episodes with us toward the end of 2017, discussing his experiences writing for Universal Studios and some of his wonderful stories of his time as the original strolling Dreamfinder and Figment. Today, we will be discussing all things Journey into Imagination and the Imagination Pavilion. Ron, thank you for joining me again. My pleasure, Kevin. Happy to be here. Since we talked last, I've had actually a chance to pick up a copy of your book, um, From Dreamer to Dreamfinder. For those of you that have yet to read Ron's book, I highly encourage it. It had a lot of great stories for Disney and Imagination fans, and it also goes into depth on the art of themed entertainment. Um, Ron, can you just touch on From Dreamer to Dreamfinder? Well, uh, as I spoke before, I spent 40 years in themed entertainment, and one of the reasons I got into it, I was fascinated with the uh, potential for live performance within the corporate themed environment. Uh, it's not something like uh, Renaissance fairs where there is no corporate entity overseeing things and people can do anything they want. But in the, the corporate themed entertainment, you have to create characters. You have to create magic within a corporate environment. So the idea of balancing the operational realities uh, and the needs of producing a show on that scale with those uh, creative constraints and at the other end, creating magic for the guest. It's always fascinated me, and it's something that I wanted to study. Back in the in the 60s, when things at uh, Disneyland were, uh, was, there was a revolution starting with Pirates of the Caribbean and the Haunted Mansion, and I saw this revolution coming, and I thought there's going to be a similar revolution in the idea of live performance. And it's something that I wanted to study, that I wanted to learn about. Uh, now we're in, a, in an age where Disney has got this living character initiative and they're creating these amazing characters and these new ways of interacting with the guests, but they're all technical. Uh, and I'm still fascinated with the idea of live performance and how that works. So I set out uh, from an early, uh, from the 70s to study how that process worked, why shows worked when they worked, why they didn't when they didn't. And um, then... Forty years later, I sat down and wrote a textbook, uh, and that's my book, From Dreamer to Dreamfinder, uh, that is part memoir but also part textbook about how live-themed entertainment works, and uh, my experience with Dreamfinder uh, proved a perfect uh, example of that. Um, towards the beginning of the book, you talk about getting to visit uh, the Disney archives just as it was uh, beginning to be organized. What was that like? Uh, in 1970, I was still uh, in high school, and uh, there was an article in the Variety about the, the new Disney archives. They just hired this UCLA librarian, Dave Smith, to put them together. And I wrote a little fan letter to Dave Smith. I was one of the first people to do it. And he invited me right up to the archives. Uh, and I went out to uh, Disney Studios. Uh, and Walt's, uh, Walt's office, his suite of offices up in the animation building, is where Dave was based. And uh, the archives were just kind of spilling out 
all over Walt's offices and the secretary's offices. Uh, there were no uh, climate-controlled uh, vaults. There was no giant staff. It was just Dave in a room filled with Disney history. And uh, I got to walk in. The first thing I saw in front of me was this beautiful blonde wood hutch. Then piled on these glass shelves were the uh, animation cells from Steamboat Willie, the first uh, sound Mickey Mouse cartoon. I got to handle the cells. I got to see the first uh, Lincoln robot was in there and the Zorro costume. I got to walk through Walt's uh, uh, formal office, which hadn't been touched in the four years since he'd passed. Um, it was an amazing experience. Dave has been a good friend uh, ever since. And, of course, the, the man who we all love because of uh, how he saved Disney history. Nobody else would had ever done anything like that. Uh, so that was a, the first clue I had that I might have a place uh, in this company, and uh, Dave is the first person who made me feel welcome. And your love for Disney history shows. You're so great to fans appearing at events, doing interviews such as this one. Um, and I'm sure being a fan of theme parks yourself has something to do with your love for the community. Yeah. Um, so I'm really happy to have you on again, and I want to get right into Journey into Imagination and the Imagination Pavilion. Ron was there from pretty much the beginning, having worked as Dreamfinder in Epcot for the five months before the Dark Ride opened, and before that in promotional material. The first thing I would like to touch on is Dreamfinder Run, the short film that was to play in the Magic Eye Theater. Um, you were in the short film, and this was one of the first times you had put on the costume, right? Oh yeah, the first time. Uh, this was a couple of weeks before I was moved, I was scheduled to fly out to uh, Florida from California, um, and uh, I got a call on Saturday morning. I'm still in bed from Barry Braverman, who was uh, overseeing the creation of the uh, Image Works. Uh, the interactive area for the second floor of imagination. And he says, uh, Ron, we need you in Florida. I said, I know I'll be out there in two weeks. He said, no, no, we need you out there this afternoon. Uh, Murray Lerner, the gentleman who was creating and directing the uh, film Magic Journeys, the revolutionary 3D film that was going to be in the, in the pavilion, uh, looked like the film might not be finished. And their contract with Kodak uh, stipulated that uh, when the park opened, they, they all knew the ride was going to be late because it was so technically advanced. It was the last ride they started for the parks. But so they knew the ride wasn't going to be finished. And the image works uh, was iffy. And the 3D movie was iffy. And they had to have something open in that pavilion per their contract with Kodak. So uh, the company decided that they would shoot a preview film that would run in the Ma uh, Magic Eye Theater, the space that was to be uh, uh, set aside for Magic Journeys. It would be a, a, a trailer for a film, would introduce the characters, Dreamfinder and Figment, and there'd be a clip, a couple clips for Magic Journeys. Uh, so they do the 3D effects, so people could see that. Uh, but it was going to be this kind of placeholder for that theater. And so they'd be, they'd be sure there was something in that theater when the park opened in October, uh, on October 1st. Uh, they um, called me up and said, we need you in Florida. So that day, boom, I fly out to Florida and they take me out to the uh, Imagination Pavilion, which was, uh, it's, you know, in the middle of, it was a construction site. Uh, there was uh, just a couple of rooms in the ride that had been set up and, uh, and polished and were ready to be put in front of a camera, even in their primitive state. Uh, they had a costume there from the uh, leftover from the groundbreaking of the pavilion, a fellow by the name of Joe Hudgens, who was um, one of the Dapper Dans on Main Street, a chubby little guy, wonderful fellow. And uh, he played the Dreamfinder and Figment 
for the groundbreaking of the pavilion months before. And so they had his costume and they uh, mocked up a wig and beard and mustache for me, uh, rather primitive. And um, they shot some footage of me running around on the second floor of Imagination inside the crystals and uh, walking through uh, the Rainbow Tunnel with a prototype figment puppet. Uh, that was the very first thing I ever did as the character. And then we flew back to California to Wed's Tahunga facility. And there was a fellow there by the name of Mike Jitlove, J-I-T-T-L-O-V, who uh, is a revolutionary filmmaker. He does a stop motion, but he does it in a way no one else does. There's a wonderful film of his called The Wizard of Speed and Time. Uh, and Mike Jitlove is a hero of mine, is a film major uh, briefly in college. Uh, and Mike Jitlove was hired. He did some work for the Disney Channel. You might be familiar with a film he did for the Disney Channel that was about a guy who was um, seeing his psychiatrist about his uh, his obsession with Mickey Mouse and the psychiatrist's office comes alive with thousands of marching toy Mickeys, that was Mike Jitlove. And uh, I got to meet Mike Jitlove and we spent a couple days at Wed Tahunga. I was dressed as Dreamfinder and they shot footage of me running at high speed through um, the WED facilities while all these things are being worked on for the different attractions at Epcot Center. Uh, the people around me who were working would move it very slow in slow motion and I would run through at high speed and then they would speed it all up and it looked like I was zipping around like some kind of crazy uh, animal and they were all moving at regular speed. And uh, the film is called Dreamfinder Run uh, we, uh, I got to see all sorts of stuff that was being worked on at WED. Uh, we were there for two days. Uh, it was, uh, I was in a lot of pain because I had to do a lot of running, which I was in no shape for. And the uh, concrete floors where they build these things are very, very hard. And so I was pounding the hell out of my legs and, uh, I was, I could barely walk at the end of the two days doing the shoot. Uh, the film, um, uh, was, it was visually stunning. Um, I did not like the way that I looked as Dreamfinder. The beard was all wrong. It was it kind of hung on me. Uh, the wig was was too big. I, I when I finally saw the film in a screening at the Disney Studios, um, I was very I, I I wasn't wild about it. I just I didn't look like the character in the ride. I looked like some kind of uh, hermit. Uh, but, um, I was, so I was very relieved to find out that Murray Lerner heard that they were putting a trailer in his movie theater. And so he, uh, uh, bared down and finished the film on time. So it was there the day that the park opened and the Mur Dreamfinder run was never seen in the Magic Eye Theater. The footage though, uh, lived on and, um, you can see it if you look at the, uh, uh, well, first of all, Dreamfinder Run, you can see in one of the um, uh, Martin Smith uh, tributes to Imagination. Uh, he has the entire thing on there. And also then when they wind up fil filming the uh, uh, television production for the grand opening of Epcot Center that we'll talk about in a bit with me and Danny Kaye, um, when I'm delivering, a, a, I'm delivering these little rhymes about uh, the pavilion and you'll see footage of me as Dreamfinder doing the Dreamfinder Run uh, over that. So Epcot opens and you're the only character to be strolling around Future World, but Journey into Imagination has yet to open. 
Um, what were, were people confused as to who you were? Was it difficult to establish the character without the ride? The One of the very first things I did, and I think this was actually just before October 1st, uh, the company flew me down to Miami, and I rode on a Kodak float uh, through the Orange Bowl Parade through downtown Miami. Uh, they built an enormous float, just stunning, with the dream-catching machine in full size. Uh, Figman and I sat up on my chair up in the front, and there was the replica of the volcano, the letters of the volcano, the typewriting volcano on the back. And we rode through the middle of downtown Miami at night, like I say, a, maybe a week before the park opened. The whole route, everywhere we went, everybody was shouting, it's the Dream Finder. Everybody knew who we were. Now, this has never been explained to me, but I think I know why. And I, when I was a kid, if I saw an ad for Disneyland in the paper, my eyes immediately went to Mickey Mouse and whatever characters there were. As a kid, that's what fascinated me was those characters. And I think the people saw the publicity, and there was always a good sketch of Dreamfinder and Figment on all the publicity for the park. And I think that's why people knew who we were. Uh, everybody had a pretty good idea going in. They didn't know why we were, but they knew who we were. And so I never had to spend any time explaining who I was to the guests. I spent a lot of my time explaining who I was to the press, but um, not to the guests. They seemed to know who we were. And, and even if they didn't, I mean, I was this crazy professor and I had a dragon with me. So it's kind of a great icebreaker right there. On to some other promotional material. Um, tell me about the interview you did with Imagineer Barry Braverman. Um, and the two of you were interviewed by Brian Gumbel. Uh, it was the very first time I had ever done the character of the park. This was on the morning of October 1st. Uh, I had two things to accomplish that day. I was going to be interviewed uh, live on national TV on the Today Show by Brian Gumbel. And then I was going to go right over and film uh, the, uh, my bit in the uh, opening special with Danny Kaye and Drew Barrymore. Uh, so I, I arrive at work. They put me in the wig, beard, and mustache. I didn't like the way the beard looked to this uh, even then. It was very primitive back then. It took, it took them for about... Uh, it took him about a year to get the wig, beard, and mustache to where it looked right, uh, because we were kind of it was a it was a, definitely a make do thing. It costs a lot of money, takes a lot of time to make a custom beard that looks natural, and they were cutting my beards out of women's wigs, and uh, and as and my mustaches, so uh, that whole thing was very rough to start with. So this is the very first day I'm out there. I'm just starting to get a handle on the Dreamfinder voice. I'm just starting to get a handle on animating the dragon, which is very stiff and very difficult to animate. Um, and I'm kind of thrown, boom, you're so, okay, you're on television. Brian Gumbel didn't know me from Adam. Um, he had only the comic, uh, copy that was in front of him, which probably was written by Today Show writers, who, uh, you know, it wasn't writing so much as it was just typing, and let's just put this character on, and boom, I was thrown to the wolves. I didn't know what he was going to ask me. I was improvising like crazy, as you can kind of tell when you listen to me. And uh, I'm sitting there on uh, live television, just suddenly everything I say is just spilling out into the world. Um, and uh, it was a major act of improvisation, and not a very good one, I must say. Uh, the highlight for me, and you can see this on the video, 
uh, after he'd finished speaking to me, he started talking to Barry Braverman, who was sitting on my other side. And uh, I'm watching on the monitor. And I'm kind of left out of the conversation at this point. But you'll notice that uh, I was sitting there and I could see Figman's horn was kind of sticking in the side of the picture where Barry Braverman was. And so I leaned Figment into the shot and had him wiggle his horns at the camera. Uh like he was completely an independent thing. Um, and that to me was the, the highlight of the whole experience for me was that I got that one moment where Figment came alive on camera. Um, but it was, uh, yeah, it was kind of stiff and kind of awkward. And uh, I'm embarrassed to say that it shall live forever in the annals of YouTube. It wasn't the worst improvising job. Brian asked you how you fit in with the other Disney characters, uh, like Mickey and Goofy. Have you ever been asked that before? Or was that just off the cuff? Oh, you can tell by my answer. No, I had no idea. I'd never heard it before. Never heard it since. Well, but your answer wasn't wrong. It actually fit well with the character. Did you prepare for this kind of question? I spent a lot of time prior to this job talking to myself about the character and about Epcot Center. I knew that I was going to be the only character out there talking about the park. And one of the great things about the Dreamfinder is that uh, he can talk about anything. He can talk about uh, Epcot Center. He can talk about Walt Disney. He can talk about dragons. Uh, he's a process of imagination come alive. And as such, he can discuss anything. And when I would do press events, do press shows, and I'd go out for interviews when I was going out to TV shows and stuff like that, I would tell the people who were going to interview me, I can talk about anything you want except me. I can't talk about Ron Schneider. Um, but I could talk about any uh, subject because, uh, of course, I've been studying Disney and, and the concepts behind Epcot Center for a long time. And I spent a lot of time before I had to uh, start doing interviews. I knew I was going to have to. So I spent a lot of time just talking to myself and uh, trying to uh, get up, uh, up to speed on these things. I thought the question was awkward as hell, but um, I, I was prepared to answer it uh, after a fashion. Toward the end of the interview, Brian says something like, and thank you, Figment, I assume he has something to say, as if he expected you to start puppeteering Figment and hiding your mouth live on TV. <laughs> I don't really remember that. Um, <laughs> there was, it does look like, a, it, the, the whole setup does look like a ventriloquist setup, and uh, one of the early things, in my very first conversation with Tony Baxter about the characters, I had done ventriloquism as a child. Uh, I had event dummy, um, and I asked Tony if they were going to want Figment to talk. He said, well, the, when they were first putting the characters together, they took uh, a Figment puppet to a child's birthday party, and the kids loved him as long as he didn't talk uh, because that, that voice, that high-pitched voice, when combined with the very big eyes and the horns, was too much for people. And uh, so the decision was made early on that Figma would talk to me. And, uh, and we got a lot of humor uh, over the years out of uh, him talking to me and then I implying what he had said. Uh, one of my favorite gags was kids would pet him on the nose. Figma would turn, say something to me, and I'd say, no, 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 no. They, they, he's not spoiled. They all smell like that. <laughs> um, also, that uh, shot of you in the rainbow tunnel. Um, that they, they kept showing. Did you ever re-record that, or was that just from the, the first few weeks you were there? Oh, yeah, yeah. You can tell because of the beard. The beard is too long and not curled uh, the way that it would eventually be, the way it was on the ride. 
Um, so you can tell the hair, the hair's too long and the beard's too long. And I'm walking along talking to Figment and, uh, yeah, that's the same shot. Also the Christmas special with you and Figment. That was you playing Dreamfinder. It sounded like your voice. Uh, yeah, the Chris, the, the, talking about Christmas wishes and we'll collect them here at the, uh, at the image works. Um, yeah, that was me and, uh, uh, Bob Allen, who was our head of, uh, media production at, uh, Epcot center voiced Figment for that. Um, but uh, yeah, we did, um, uh, that was for the Christmas parade. We did um, uh, a couple of different things through the years for the for the Christmas parade. I did a couple of perform- appearances as Santa for those, and then uh, the very first Christmas show uh, for Christmas of of eighty two. Um, there was a segment with me and uh, Figment at Imagination talking about collecting uh, Christmas wishes. There's uh, interviews with various people in the park, and then Figment and I walking through the. Um, uh, the uh, uh, dream port uh, by one of the spark jars. Um, and there's a, a, an interesting story about the spark jars. Uh, the, uh, we were walking through, we shot that thing like two o'clock in the morning. Um, and uh, the only part of the pavilion that was really finished at that point, they were working and dressing all the sets and getting all the special effects up. We walked through the, we dropped through the dream port and they had these giant spark jars. And uh, we, they fit me up with a body mic. I had a mic pack in my pocket and a cable that ran up. And there was a little um, mic that was a clip to my uh, vest. And we went to shoot the thing. And I go walking up in front of the spark jar. And suddenly there's this painful drilling in my chest. And I look down and there is a spark, a visible spark, arcing from the microphone into my chest. Uh, very painful. And I got away from that spark jar as quickly as possible. And we finally determined that the uh, static electricity being generated by the spark jar was causing the microphone to give off sparks that arced into my chest. So we, uh, we quickly got away from there. Uh, they um, wound up uh, duct taping a very thick sponge pad to my chest. They carved out a little divot where they put the microphone in there. And then I could walk by the spark jar with the mic pack on, the mic live, and it wouldn't, uh, it wouldn't hurt me. It wouldn't, there'd be no spark. Uh, now, this, uh, <laughs> a couple of weeks after we shot this, um, I'm uh, at home in bed on a Sunday morning. Didn't have to go into work that day. And it's Sunday, so there isn't much on TV. I'm laying lay in bed watching the TV. And there was this live broadcast that was done back then on Sunday mornings from the Orlando Science Museum. They would do a live broadcast uh, for for kids at home uh, showing scientific principles. And on this particular day, they had a couple uh, classes of grade school kids at the museum. And they were going to talk today about static electricity. And they had a table set up in front of all these kids sitting on the floor. And the table had – there was a uh, a graph uh, generator which is one of those big silver balls that gives off static electricity. And there was a Jacob's Ladder, one of those uh, t- uh, two-pronged things that have the lightning bolts going up the side of it, you know. And um, they're going to do a demonstration with for the kids about static electricity. And we have here little Jenny, and they brought up this little girl. She was maybe about six or seven years old, very sweet looking. And um, Jenny, we're going to have you come up here, and we're going to touch. Put your, have you put your hand on the graph generator, and uh, you won't feel anything, but uh, it's going to make your hair stand up because of the static electricity. 
and I look and Jenny's wearing a wireless mic and I'm lying in bed. This is live TV and I'm going, oh, God, no, 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 please don't. Oh, geez. So I'm I'm on the phone. I'm on the phone trying to call the museum to say, don't do this to little Jenny. <laughs> they turn the graph generator on. This little girl had this beautiful smile on her face until they turn that generator on. And then her smile just disappears. And she's got this panicked look on her face. And she's looking around and looking around at the adults and looking around at the camera. And she has something she wants to say to them, but she doesn't dare. And they, she touched the thing and her hair stood up and, and they said, thank you, Jenny. And they sent her back. And I, I was the only person in all of Central Florida who knew what that poor girl went through. Is that a sparking maybe a metaphor for the danger of creativity? <laughs> that works for me. On that, another wonderful part of your book is where you would stop and wave wherever you saw someone taking a picture in the distance. We invented photobombing. Yeah, I just, I wish we had all those pictures of you and Figment in the background so we could cut together a really cheesy um, horror movie trailer where someone develops the photos and realizes that you were in the back the whole time. Uh, so, so in December of 82, um, Imageworks opens and you've been strolling outside, but um, now you can go upstairs and interact with guests. I had run of the building um, kind of unofficially. Uh, the way that Epcot is laid out, um, our entertainment offices and the places where I pick up my costume and had the makeup done and everything was on, was way the heck on the other side of Epcot. So I had to take a bus to get around the outskirts of Epcot and then walk to my pavilion. So there was nobody, I had nobody holding my hand or running interference for me. I was very much on my own all day. Uh, and I had this massive pavilion that I was, uh, that was my home. And I took full advantage of that. I, uh, when before ImageWorks, uh, or the ride was open, I spent most of my time down in the gar- in the picture taking garden. Um, but uh, as those areas opened up, yeah, I could I could go in those uh, those areas uh, at will. And and I did a lot of exploring myself before those areas opened. I would I walked through the ride every single day, uh, just to to watch it being put together because I could. And um, same thing with the image works. Uh, so, yeah, I had run of the place. But your dressing room would eventually move, right, uh, to the behind the electronic Philharmonic. Yeah, very quickly I found that, found that room. Um, when I first got to the pavilion that very first day, uh, actually the, the couple of days before the park opened, um, I knew I was going to have to find a space to take breaks uh, between sets. And uh, so I started exploring through the pavilion. And which was, you know, pretty much all shut up at that time. There was nobody, no, no guests around. There was a break area downstairs uh, behind the ride that was for the ride operators, uh, which had a nice access to the back of the pavilion, but uh, no access uh, to um, the, the picture-taking garden. Um, there was a staircase that led up to ImageWorks. So I started exploring around backstage at the ImageWorks. And behind the electronic philharmonic, there was a uh, service hall. There was a, a custodial room there with a sink. There was a, f- a phone in the hallway. There was um, what they call a fire room that uh, was a uh, bare concrete floor, very tall ceiling, fluorescent lights, and bare walls. The door could not lock. Um, and this is a room that was to be used in case of an emergency. If you had people like in wheelchairs who couldn't get downstairs and they couldn't take them down the stairs and they couldn't use the elevator, they'd put them in there because the room was uh, supposedly fire, fireproof and they could, they'd be safe in there in case of an emergency. 
So uh, there was a fan running in there constantly, a very, very loud fan. That was my first break room. I smuggled a couple of folding chairs up there. There were three pieces of wood that were nailed together that I used as a table. And uh, that was my break room uh, for the first few days until I got someone up there with a key. They unlocked the electri electrical room behind uh, Electronic Philharmonic, which had a bunch of electrical boxes on one wall. But other than that, it was a pretty good size. And so they, the nice people at Disney outfitted it with carpeting. They put on a couch and an easy chair. They had a big makeup table with chairs and a big mirror with lights all around the edge of it. And, and um, I decorated the walls with uh, some of my own personal Disney collection. There was a, a beautiful antique map of Disneyland and pictures of the Wizard of Oz and uh, all sorts of pictures of Walt Disney and postcards with pictures of dragons. I had a little li library that I made up with a couple of milk crates with all the books that I'd researched uh, for uh, uh, Imagination and Epcot Center and Dragons. And so I had a great little home up there and a key to it. Uh, and the room was directly behind the Imageworks, so I could get into the Imageworks real easy. And there was a stairway that ran right down to the uh, picture-taking garden. And uh, that became my home for the next uh, well, four and a half years. In the book, you talk about some of your favorite experiences as DreamFinder and interacting with guests, one of which is in Imageworks on the upstairs area. Um, what were some of these interactions? One of the favorite things to do in the morning was to go into the Imageworks where there'd be some kid playing with a magic palette, um, which was this, uh, this tele video screen that you could paint on with an electric paintbrush. And you could call up different images to paint, and one of the things people would inevitably wind up calling, getting up is a portrait of Dreamfinder. And um, so had, they just came off the ride when they come up there, and somebody would be painting the Dreamfinder with a video brush, and I'd walk up behind them with Figment, and we just silently stand there and watch them for a minute. And then I would just turn to Figment and quietly say, he's very good, isn't he? And the kid would turn around and just a wonderful moment, their eyes would get as big as saucers, and. Uh, uh, we 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 meet him we meet him and uh, shake hands and uh, maybe walk him around a little bit. Um, but yeah, that was that was a wonderful thing to be able to orchestrate these these magic moments for people using the using the setting. Um, you couldn't do that later in the day when there were millions and millions of people in there and a line waiting to use the magic palettes. But uh, in the morning when there was uh, the pressure was off, uh, you could do some wonderful things. So at one point, um, you talk about how you got to meet Tony Baxter and Barry Braverman and got to see some of the technology being put into the ride, including the Dreamcatcher. That was in California at uh, WED in Glendale. Um, they had just programmed the scene. Uh, the Dreamcatching machine itself was up on sawhorses in the middle of a room hooked up to the computers. Uh, the Dreamfinder figure was in place. Uh, Figma was in a, a chamber pot. And um, there was the... The very first day that I visited WED, my friend Ken Lisi, who at the time was running the sound department uh, at, uh, at WED, um, brought me in to, to give me a cassette of the Dreamfinder voice. And then he introduced me to Tony, and Tony and Barry took me back into the back and showed me that they just finished programming the opening scene of Imagination. And um, they pushed a button, and I got to witness this miracle. I was one of the first people to see it. Uh, the whole opening scene with Dreamfinder and Figment. Once you made your way to Florida, though, you would get to walk the ride before it opened. From uh, I, I walked the ride from the beginning of uh, from the opening of Epcot Center, uh, you know, the the last week of September uh, through um, March 
uh, when we opened the March of 83, when we opened the ride. So every day, every day I would go out there go down there. The first time I did it, I did it in the complete uh, Dreamfinder and Figment rig. I was running into people who were uh, working on the ride who were surprised as hell to see Dreamfinder walking around. Um, but after that, I would uh, I would just go down there in my uh, civvies and uh, just walk the the whole ride path uh, was carpeted and you could um, you could walk alongside where the uh, the, uh, the the cars went. And um, it was just fascinating to, to see it, uh, especially when you when you got to the turntable scene with the Dreamcatcher on it. There are five of those scenes on that giant turntable and walking that perimeter of that turntable was like running through the Flintstones house. The background doesn't change. It just keeps, it's the same thing over and over and over and over. Um, people always talk about, you know, hopping out of rides. And the fact of the matter is that you're not going to see much um, hopping out of rides. And, and basically what I saw was what was there. It was interesting to see the way it evolved and the way things were polished um, as it went along. But everything cemented down pretty well. And uh, uh, it, was, it, was, it was really fascinating. I went through there uh, one time and uh, uh, there was uh, Tony Baxter was sitting on the floor uh, making up, uh, cutting uh, plastic rods, making up a, a, a doofer sign. Uh, because the, when you first entered the realm of image technology, there were supposed to be all these different animated signs um, around the entrance by where the Dreamfinder uh, uh, Swami was with Figment and the Crystal Ball. But they hadn't been delivered. They weren't going to be delivered in time. And so he's, he was uh, improvising signs that would, uh, would go in those spaces. Um, one of the other things, uh, about the ride that Tony told me was the, uh, uh laser, uh, writer, uh, effect in the, in the performing arts section where Dreamfinder's conducting and there's, uh, laser, uh, images of a bird flying and a hat and cane and, and drama mask, drama and comedy masks. Um, that was supposed to be, they had animated a, uh, beautiful sequence, a sequence with figment in a tutu that was going to be dancing with a ballerina. And this is all done with a light writer, a laser writer, and they were gonna be dancing around each other on this big stage. But um, it wasn't gonna be ready in time. And so the uh, laser writer uh, footage that was there with the hat and cane and the, the masks was the sample uh, video that came with the laser writer. Um, and, uh, since it, it was related to a uh, live performance, it's, it fit. So they, uh, that's what they had that space for all those years. Um, there was also one of the things that, uh, I caught, uh, that intrigued me was the scene with Dreamfinder and the Swa and the Swami with the crystal ball and figments. Um, there was this dialogue between, uh, the two of them and Dreamfinder's going, um, Figment could take, and Figment says, Dreamfinder could take us, you know, or imagination could take us anywhere. He goes, it's your key to exploring the wonders of your world, uh, fantasy and reality. And um, you could hear Dreamfinder's voice speed up. His pitch would raise at the same spot every time he got to this particular line. It's your key to, uh, to display the wonders of your world, uh, 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 fantasy and reality. And the voice would, would jump, uh, would speed up slightly, and the, the pitch would go up. And I asked Tony about that, and he said, 
um, that's the computer speeding up so everything's in sync. And it was that way. It was that way for the run of the show for the for the uh, sixteen years that the show ran. Um, every time we get to that point, the computer would speed up uh, that one line of dialogue so that everything in the building would be in sync. All the music and all the effects and everything like that. That was one flaw that they never got around to fixing. I mentioned in the episode the fog effect that wasn't used um, to simulate that you're like floating on clouds. This was removed pretty quickly, right? Well, it wasn't removed. It was installed. It just was never used. Um, I had been there for uh, quite a while, a year or two maybe. And one time I got on the ride and suddenly the whole ride was filled with fog. There was this wonderful bank of fog, low-lying fog through the ride. Through, uh, especially through uh, the, um, rel- the, the realm of art, the, the beautiful white area with the, the carousel and figment with the jar with the rainbow. And um, it was wonderful cloud effect that you, you, couldn't, you couldn't, almost couldn't see the car you were in with your head was just kind of going up and, up and down through the clouds. It's a wonderful effect. And um, I found out I, I found out that there were 36 fog machines built into the ride, the length of the ride that were intended to have this fog effect that would carry you through the ride, because we're all you know we're all flying on the, in the dream catching machine. Um, but they couldn't turn it on because the it was a Disney invention, a fog nozzle that created fog not chemically, but just with water. And the problem was the entire attraction had been painted with water-based paint. And if they left the fog machine on, all the paint would run off, would all disappear. And so they couldn't turn it on. So the one time I saw it, it was just an amazing effect, but they couldn't turn it on. Uh, another interesting point about that ride is that it was one of the first examples in the world of digital photography. Uh, when, uh, with Kodak sponsoring the pavilion, um, one of the early ideas was, well, let's take a picture of the guests so the guests can see themselves in the ride. And so as you were entering um, the, the image technology area, there's going to be a uh, flash, and we were going to take your picture. And then later on on the ride, as you're coming out of the uh, scene with the, uh, where Figment is surrounded by the possibilities of the future and Dreamfinder's on the camera crane, we we're going to have a big video projection showing you in the ride. No one had ever done this before. Um, and it was very primitive digital photography. There were 12 uh, metal uh, racks backstage. Very, like very large closets, 12 of them. Each one contained a computer and the setup for taking one picture, storing it for the length of the space between where they take the picture and where it's displayed, and um, storing it long enough to bring it back, and then it would be wiped, and the next picture would be taken. And this is there are 12 of them lined up in this one backstage room. And Kodak was not wild about the idea of digital photography. They had, reje- they had rejected going into the business, which is why Kodak's hurting, uh, wound up uh, hurting pretty bad. Um, but uh, one of the first brushes they ever had with digital photography was because of Tony Baxter and the Imagineers uh, presenting this idea. And Kodak really couldn't turn it down because it was something that nobody had ever seen before. And the, the power of seeing yourself on camera 
uh, something that uh, has always been uh, used by Disney whenever possible. And so you talked to Tony Baxter, and the episode I just did goes into depth uh, on the inspiration for Journey to Imagination, and it goes all the way back to Professor Marvel and his Gallery of Wonders and Discovery Bay, um, and these things, of course, never came to be. Um, did he ever relay this information to you when you were preparing for the role? Oh, oh yeah. Well, the very first uh, that first day when they showed me the uh, Dreamcatching machine had just been programmed. After that, we uh, he and Barry Braverman and I sat down, and um, Tony spilled his guts, uh, talked about uh, the hunt for Dreamfinder and Figment's voice, and uh, the uh, work that went into the development of the attraction, the, the philosophy behind Dreamfinder and Figment. Uh, they were very, very forthcoming, and uh, uh, it was just wonderful. They, they gave me all the background that I needed uh, for the characters. And yeah, he told me that, uh, and he's spoken about it many times in, in interviews about uh, how Professor Marvel uh, became Dreamfinder and uh, the the presentation they did to Kodak to sell them on the idea of Professor Marvel. And he went out to fetch a little sculpture of uh, Professor Marvel to show the Kodak people when they were pitching the idea. And the sculpture, he was holding the dragon. And Kodak says, well, can we get the dragon too? Boom. Suddenly I had a partner. So just to finish up, um, you mentioned before that you had an idea for a way to bring back Journey to Imagination, um, but updated and different and for the modern era. Do you mind sharing your concept, or would you rather keep that a secret? No, happy to talk about it. Um, basically, like I said, the, it's the idea of the guest would fly the dream-catching machine. So basically, my idea is, if you're familiar with Journey to the Center of the Earth, the attraction Disney did for Tokyo Disney Seas, there's a ride vehicle. It's kind of like a small bus where the guests are sitting in rows uh, with that are open to the side. And um, I would put a, uh, a dream catcher uh, next to every seat. So the guests uh, can it would kind of look like the cannon on the front of uh, Toy Story Midway Mania, uh, except this one doesn't shoot uh, at first. It collects things. It sucks them up. So you're fly you're in this uh, this dream catching machine now, and you're flying through the sky as we saw Dreamfinder doing at the beginning of the old ride. But now, you're flying through the sky filled with sparks. And as these different ideas and concepts appear, you use your cannon to suck up their image, and um, you can store them. You store them inside the cannon. There'd be a video readout showed you what sparks you have, and then you would fly through the same areas that um, you visited in the original ride. There'd be the realm of art, the realm of literature, the realm of performing arts and science and visual arts. And um, you would uh, then take the sparks that you collected and fire them at items in those different realms and create new things out of them. So the, the whole concept of the journey into imagination, the thing they started with, and this is something Tony and, and Barry talked to me about that very first meeting, was they had to quantify imagination. They had to, if they were going to talk about the project, uh, talk about the subject, they were going to have to break it down into its component parts so they could explain it, they could talk about it, they could make a write about it. They broke it down into three parts, collecting, storing, and recombining. We all do this all the time. We collect sparks of inspiration. We store them in our minds and we recombine them to make new things. This is what all of creativity is. So on my ride, we would collect those same sparks the way Dreamfinder did in the ride. We would store them in our little cannon, which would become what our version of the Dreamport, 
was that wasn't the ride. And then you would you shoot them at these different objects and recombine them to create new things. Um, this is just a basic thread for a new ride, but it's a, a, a way I, that I came up with of building off of what we had that worked, but this time bringing it into our time, making it personal, a personal experience for you, the guest, and so that we become the dream finders. Um, it's not so, he's not somebody we meet. Uh, but he becomes us, which is basically the message of the original ride, is that imagination is something that belongs to all of us. That's a wonderful concept. I think audiences would absolutely love that. They love that ride style, and I think that they could even surpass Journey to Imagination um, as far as the, uh, the message of inspiring guests to be imaginative. Um, so we have two links for everyone listening that we w- want you to consider checking out. Um, one is Ron's book, which I can personally recommend myself. That link is in the description. And another is a DVD of the ride. And Ron, can you touch on this? Jeff Lang, a wonderful man who does some of the best theme park videos out there, uh, has produced a DVD uh, that's um, all about uh, Dreamfinder, Figment, and the original ride. Uh, there's a 20-minute interview with me about uh, the character. And then there's this wonderful video of the original old ride uh, that uh, so you can experience that ride. And then there is a director's commentary track that goes along with the video. And I talk you through the ride and point things out and talk about the history of the attraction and the different elements that were in there. It's a great video. Uh, and uh, you can find it on jefflangdvd.com. I believe that uh, Kevin's got the link there for you. And um, you, you check it out. I, it's, it's, a, it's a nice production. Jeff always does first-rate stuff. Yes, that link is also in the description. So, Ron, thank you so much for coming on. It truly means a lot to all of us that you have given us your time again. Um, to everyone listening, don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast. Thank you for listening, and thank you for visiting Defunct Land. Defunct Land.